0: You're listening to the Transforming Chaplaincy Podcast. I'm Michael Skaggs, Communications Director for Transforming Chaplaincy. Today, I'm speaking with the Reverend Kelsey White, a Transforming Chaplaincy Fellow and a chaplain with Norton Healthcare. Kelsey, thank you for joining us here on the show. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, you can go as far back as you like, uh, and how did you end up in chaplaincy as a career?
1: Thanks for having me, Michael. Um, So I am a chaplain in Louisville, Kentucky at Norton Healthcare and have been here for the past three years, originally from Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, Before I came to Norton, I started with a position right out of my residency at UAB Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. Not the direction I thought I would end up going. So when I was in seminary, I went to seminary in New York, went to Union Theological in New York, and hated the idea of pastoral care, hated the idea of being in a hospital, thought that it was something that I would never do, not a direction I thought I would go. I decided to do a unit of CPE um, just because I thought it would be a helpful uh, background <laughs> Um, helpful experience to have and something just to kind of keep in my toolbox because originally I thought I was going to do Christian education at a church and figured I couldn't avoid sick people even if I worked in a church. So did a unit of CPE with a hospice. Um, that first unit, I just, I fell in love with it. Every, I mean, I couldn't um, get enough time with folks as it is. I, I worked primarily with Alzheimer's patients the, the pastoral skill, skills needed to really go in depth weren't exactly needed at that point um, since our conversations were pretty limited. But I just fell in love with being with people who were you know at a really critical and, and transitional times in their lives. So when I finished my first unit of CPE, I actually was still on the path of working at a church. My supervisor at the time, Carol Green, who I'm sure many of you all know was trying so hard to talk me into a residency. Um, But I said, no, you know, I think I'm going to go work in this church. That's, that's what I want to do. Left the chaplaincy world to work in a church and worked in a church for about a year and a half. And i had worked in a number of churches before then. I probably had more experience in churches than most people right out of seminary, but there was something about, being in that setting after doing CPE that made me really rethink what I was doing with my life, with my gifts. And so after a year and a half, I left the church and decided to do a residency with some support and um, encouragement from Carol and ended up at university of Louisville hospital doing my um, chaplain residency. And from there, I, you know, I just loved it. Couldn't get enough of, of the pastoral care in a hospital. When I finished that, I started looking for a job like most residents do, uh, and ended up down at UAB in their outpatient outpatient center, which is a massive place, the Kirkland Clinic. I was their first outpatient chaplain, and it is five floors of clinics and offices, huge building. I think they saw over 2,500 patients a day, and I was the lone chaplain covering the whole building. Really I loved it too. Um, outpatient's very different from inpatient, as anybody who's spent a lot of time there could say. I just, you know, I think being with people who are at transitional moments in their lives and trying to figure out what it means for how they see the world and what it means for how they understand themselves is just a place that I love being. So that's kind of how I ended up in chaplaincy.
0: I'm going to take an opportunity to break the fourth wall a little bit here and tell listeners that I have had access to none of these answers beforehand. So all of my follow-up and all of my uh, further questions are are live reaction. It strikes me that to go from having absolutely zero interest in pastoral care and spiritual (laughs) care in a healthcare setting to falling in love with spiritual care, especially with elderly patients, with you know, various degrees of severity of mental uh, issues and neurological issues, that is an enormous gap to bridge. How did you get across that? What was it about working with those patients that made you change your mind completely?
1: There is something about, so when I was with the Alzheimer's patients um, and dementia patients, you have to just be with them in a way that I hadn't sat with or moments that I hadn't been with people. I think probably, I don't really remember times before that, that I had had such um, moments of connection, I guess I could call it, or holy moments, whatever, whatever term somebody would want to use. For me, it was just this ability to be there, be present with somebody, connect with them without words, without actions, without even necessarily consciously being in the same place. It was, it was, it was a a moment of connection that I hadn't experienced anywhere else. And so realizing and seeing the impact, I think that that made on me and for the people I met, I mean, I just loved it. I think also there was a time, um, I had a, a woman I visited regularly who would talk to you, but it wasn't anything that made any sense. It didn't follow any logical sentence structure. It didn't mean anything other than it was a bunch of random words that she put together. And so to be in that place with her and to engage her in conversation when I didn't know what she was talking about necessarily. And then to have a moment where her daughter came and then all of a sudden she just had this moment of clarity to watch her connect with her daughter. I mean, there's there aren't words that I can really explain it, but to essentially see that there are people who need things, who need people, who need connection, and chaplaincy was a way that they could, could find that connection in the midst of essentially chaos or crisis.
0: And certainly in those types of settings, um, the way of, of making a connection is going to be very, very different from how it would be with patients in other sorts of healthcare settings. So you worked with those patients. You also did some outpatient work. What kind of work are you doing now and what drew you to it? Or were you just sort of assigned to a, a specific department and, and you have sort of made yourself uh, happy and productive there?
1: <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, a lot of my work has really followed kind of the geriatric population because that's what I've enjoyed the most. There's just a way that I feel naturally connecting um, in those situations that, that I don't feel when I'm with peds or, you know, young adults or, you know, any, any other population. So when I went to the outpatient setting, I was doing a lot of oncology work and palliative care and then moving to Louisville, I've continued doing oncology work with adults. Um, And it's, And I I love palliative care. I think where I am now, there's not the same opportunities for palliative care, I think, organizationally as there were in Birmingham. So that's been part of my like goal is how do we bring in palliative care when we don't really have all the financial resources to do so. But it's it's all kind of followed the same trajectory. So a lot of my work now has been both inpatient and outpatient oncology care and just caring for folks in the midst of those significant life transitions.
0: Having worked in such a variety of settings and actual institutions, and of course, transforming chaplaincy is very fortunate in that we can take a global perspective on chaplaincy, and we, we enjoy partnerships with a number of, of researchers and chaplains around the world. How do you see chaplaincy being different where you are right now from other places? What makes it, what makes it unique where you are and what are some elements of commonality in the field?
1: For me working Norton is a community system. Um, UAB, U UofL, they were all academic institutions. And so working in an academic institution versus like um, a community-based system is very different. I think the whole concept of a multidisciplinary team comes more natural in an academic setting, at least from my experience. And so I, I think that that's been something that I've become more aware of. Also, going from, you know, New York City to Alabama to, you know, essentially a Midwestern city, the whole religious landscape of those areas is very different. Uh, for me, I've seen it the most in being um, a female chaplain, very different in Alabama and something that had to be addressed more intentionally in terms of conversations with patients because of their curiosity and then less so, you know, not having to address it nearly as much when I'm here in Louisville. And of course, in, in New York, it you know, um, a lot of the ministry I did there was more street ministry, but um, it was... You know, it just wasn't a, a conversation point at all. So that's something. So, you know, the whole different like nature of, of team and healthcare has been different um, as a chaplain and academic versus community systems. And then also just being a woman and being a chaplain in a traditionally um, male role, I think, is, is and, you know, the other thing, too, Michael, that I think a lot about is I, I left seminary. Uh, or I left college and went straight into seminary. And from seminary, you know, I only worked in a church for a year and a half before I started my residency. So my experience of chaplaincy um, compared to a lot of my colleagues has been straight out of school. And so my youth has also been something that's been, I guess, openly acknowledged when it comes to my experience with patients and culture. Being a younger woman doing um, chaplaincy is not exactly, you know, as people would say, you're not who I thought would walk through the door when I asked for a chaplain, which often actually helps build those relationships in really strong and positive ways.
0: Even though you stepped into chaplaincy practice as a very young chaplain and that presented both some challenges and opportunities, you have also begun training and expertise as a chaplaincy researcher. How did you get started down this particular path?
1: Um, well, I I honestly got started down this path by falling in love with Excel. And when I was doing outpatient, outpatient chaplaincy, I had to come up with a unique way to keep track of everything that I was doing that our EMR just didn't, Allow me to do, nor did any program that existed, not in a way that I wanted to. So I I was playing a lot with Excel and learning how to do that and learning how to really look at the trends essentially in what I was doing. And from there, my work with the Outpatient Palliative Care Clinic, they offered me the opportunity to come manage a grant that they had received that looked at survivorship and breast cancer um, survivors and how they. Use their community to get support as well as how folks in the inpatient and outpatient uh, world helped navigate them. So, how lay navigators helped facilitate their care and trajectory through the cancer care continuum. So, I managed that grant. And in that grant, you know, I wrote my first HSP for their IRB, the first protocol for the IRB, and learned about some statistical software and kind of. Got baptized by fire, as many would say, and anything basic research and keeping track of um, a grant and keeping track of how we implemented the grant. And I fell in love with it. I, I can't even explain, but the fact that you can take something like chaplain care and make and, and just watch it, the numbers that are related to it, and find out something more substantial. I just loved it. And it just seemed to it it helped figure out what worked best, especially in terms of that grant and what those survivors needed versus what I assumed they needed. And I just loved it. So then when I moved to Louisville, I moved up here originally just so to be closer to family. And it was so when I came up that summer is when George got up in front of APC and he announced that there was this grant. I had already decided I somehow I was going to learn more about how to do research, and when he announced that they had gotten the um, Templeton Grant, I went up to him the next time he'd never met me before. I'm sure he thought I was some kind of crazy person, and I was like, "I'm doing this. I need you to know, George, I'm doing this." And he was like, "Okay, great." And I, from there, was intent on, and still am using research to kind of help chaplains do what they do better and to help patients the best we can.
0: I can actually very much understand both sort of both halves of that question to, to say that you fell in love with research as a result of being trained and learning your way through Microsoft Excel. That does not seem like the most natural evolution. But at the same time, I also understand that when you are approaching a very human field like chaplaincy, Of course, you never want to learn, uh, I'm sorry, you don't want to lose that human touch, that human side of it, but taking a step back and attempting to quantify things can really make quite a difference. Um, I did a PhD in history, and you would not think of doing a whole lot of quantitative analysis in that particular case, but I learned early on that to put things in some sort of a system and to assign particular values and try to analyze that, in many cases, ends up yielding results that you did not expect. Or even if you have been conducting the research directly firsthand, you may have some impressions that you have come up with. You may have an idea of where things are going. But then when you actually look at the data in its raw form and manipulate it this way and that, you can see that actually you were totally wrong or, or things are a little bit more nuanced than you thought. And so I think, I think you've, you've really pointed out the balance between the human side of chaplaincy and the data side of it and how uh, the one can inform the other.
1: Right. And I think that there's this assumption that a lot of my colleagues have, or that a lot of people in just basic conversation, I've had that assume that once you like assign a number to it, that makes it something concrete and that it, you know, eliminates all of the murkiness from the world, but it's not true because there can be so... I mean, numbers by themselves can mean so many different things. And so it's just another way of looking or interpreting something, not necessarily like making it more inclusive or exclusive. It's, I mean, it broadens the way we look at um, what we're doing, not just, you know, concretely defining something. It's not doing that at all. If anything, it, you know, adds more questions, which is why I love it.
0: Well, now that we have acknowledged that, uh, that geez, I'm a nerd. No, no, no. <laughs> not, not, now that we've acknowledged that, that the very simple solution of it's complicated actually applies to most of this. How do you apply this to your work with patients? Because you have all of these questions going on about research, uh, whether it's the research that you are conducting or keeping up with other re- research, how do you apply that to your work with patients? I say the same thing to everybody I interview. I know that you can't change your methodology week after week because some new articles come out. You can't change the way you interact with patients all the time. But you do want research, I would assume, to inform your practice. How do you do that?
1: So I think at the most simple level, what it does is it makes me more curious for those interactions. Um, In those interactions, I'm more curious about when a when a patient says X, Y, or Z, what does that really mean? So that research fuels my curiosity in those encounters beyond anything else in that in its most simple form. It makes me wonder more about what's going on and what their experience is like and what they're processing than than anything larger. And then I would also say it 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 causes me to pause and to ask myself, okay, this is what I'm doing. And where does that come from? What does that mean in terms of why am I doing this? Like, why is it that when I'm on call, you know, I make sure that they have this set of phone numbers, the operator? Like, why do I do that? Do we even know that that's the best way to do it? Or where does it come? Or how could I know better uh, about what would be helpful in a certain situation? So if anything, it, it helps me to stop and look back at why I'm doing what I'm doing and the ways that I'm doing it, at a, at a more uh, operational level than, than just a pastoral level. And you know, I think it helps me let's see. How, does it, how do I incorporate it with my patients? I think it broadens the tools that I have broadens the resources that I have for um, addressing specific needs in terms of processing. I think there's a big challenge right now in chaplaincy to make research not only something people read, but how do we make it practical? How do we take this amazing study and say, okay, so now this is what this could mean for your practice. A lot of times research, research results don't result in something that's easily generalizable, um, but that doesn't mean you can't take something from it to adapt to practice. I know I had a conversation with some colleagues at one point about an article that looked at care for mothers who had experienced a stillbirth, and the research article just kind of explored that there are intense, um, existential needs in these mothers and a lot of intense grief that comes up for these mothers that have lost their child. And so we all got in a conversation of, so what does that mean for, um, chaplaincy practice? And you know, where I went was, well, you know, those kinds of experiences can happen in outpatient. What does that mean for the care we provide in outpatient settings? What does that mean for um, how we tend to the grief and loss experienced by mothers in this set, in this situation? An outpatient where they've had miscarriages or they're experiencing a really significant diagnosis of cancer even. What are we doing as chaplains to care for those people? and And then my colleagues, I think, saw it a little differently. But at the minimum, it helped us to think through, you know, there are there are practical implications, even though we can't say all mothers who have experienced X, Y, Z are experiencing A, B and C. Like we can't we can't take that and generalize, but it does mean that we can look at practically how are we tending to um, the potential for needs to arise in outpatient settings. Um, for pregnant mothers. So it can help us rethink of, you know, what, what are the, the practical ways in which we are structuring our departments? What are the logistical things we need to do to make sure we're really tending to the needs that are present versus what we think we need to do? So that's kind of that's how research impacts patients uh, for me. And, it, of course, it also depends, Michael, on um, what research I'm looking at.
0: of course, asking sort of what what ends up seeming like a very basic question about your own work can spark ideas for new research topics. But presumably, not everybody is going to be handed an Excel spreadsheet and fall in love with research because of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, I can appreciate a good spreadsheet, but I think that uh, we might be in a little bit of the minority there. For someone who has no research experience whatsoever, but has an understanding that it can improve their practice, how would you recommend they get started?
1: There's this great book coming out. It should be printed in July. It's called Evidence-Based Healthcare Chaplaincy, a Research Reader. George uh, Fitchett and Kathy Lines and I uh, did the editing on that, but I think the best way to get into um, to get into, especially for folks that just want to be able to use it for their practice, is just to read it as much as possible and not to read it in isolation, but to read it in conversation and community um, with other chaplains and other healthcare clinicians. I think a lot of times our healthcare colleagues have perspectives on religion, health and spirituality, or chaplaincy research that could really open up our eyes. And so that's I would really encourage that or if you could jump on a research team somewhere and just kind of watch them as they go through a process. I think that that's a, another great way just to learn about it. It, you know, I think reading and then having conversations really the best way to increase one's research literacy. I know too, you know, a lot of CPE programs are trying to teach research literacy. So don't um, I would I would say don't be afraid to jump into a CPE programs curriculum and sit there and learn with the students as they're going through too. Or heck, take a class at a local community college uh, on research methods, or a lot of DMEN programs offer research, me- research methods, courses that can really just open up um, one's eyes to understanding like, these are the basics. These are, this is what's going on. This is how to read it. I think those are all ways you can can begin to understand it better, and I think the better you understand some of the, even the basic components, it can make it easier to practically apply articles as you go.
0: You have downplayed your own role in it, but I don't have to do that, so I will recommend that everyone check out <laughs> the evidence-based uh, chaplaincy reader that'll be coming out uh, very soon here that is co-edited by Kelsey and George Fitchett and Kathy Lines. That is going to be a must-have text uh, to be sure moving into the future. And now, armed with that textbook uh, in hand, we also need your advice. What are the greatest opportunities and challenges for chaplaincy research and chaplaincy practice moving into the next generation?
1: So... And this is something that I feel incredibly adamant about, um, Michael, is that chaplaincy research can't stay siloed in its own little world. So in other words, what, and this is part of the reason why, so this fall I'm starting um, a doctoral program in essentially health services research, because what chaplains need to do with their research is not just take it and say, this is this is what works best here for us and this is what looks nice and this is what reduces distress, but be able to take it and say, and this is what it means for our system and this is what it means for healthcare. I think, especially in the fast, the the pace in which the religious landscape in the U.S. is changing, and I'm sure in other countries it's changing, but what I can say for the landscape here is it's changing so much that even measures of of spirituality and religion that were used twenty years ago just can't they're not working. And so like even if we you know even if we can refine that, that's still not gonna be enough. And what chaplains and chaplaincy research really needs to consider is how do I make this mean something to um, the administrators in my hospital? How do I make this mean something? How do I translate this to healthcare in general? How does it impact users' access? How does it impact the quality of the care we provide? Or you know, how does it impact the health outcomes of these patients? I think we could all say in our own um, casual conversation the importance of chaplaincy. And, and then we're moving into a place as a profession to be able to translate that into research studies But until we can make it mean something to folks that aren't chaplains and aren't in chaplaincy departments, then we're just gonna be talking to ourselves. So that's where I really hope that we go.
0: Well, certainly part of the reason that Transforming Chaplaincy decided to produce a a product like this podcast that can be so widely distributed is that it is a priority for us to get chaplaincy research out of the walls of academia uh, and even outside of the walls of healthcare, necessarily, just to to make it much more known that healthcare chaplaincy is a profession that is developing very, very quickly, Uh, and it's not only is it fast, but the leaps it is taking are just absolutely enormous, and so we are very happy and proud and privileged to be part of that process and to know that Transforming Chaplaincy is fostering that next generation of chaplains uh, and chaplain researchers who are doing such great work. So, Kelsey, thank you so much for your expertise, for your time. Uh, As with all of our other guests, you've given us a great deal to think about, and uh, we're very happy to have you in the field. Thanks, Michael. That was the Reverend Kelsey White, a Transforming Chaplaincy Fellow and a chaplain with Norton Healthcare in Louisville, Kentucky. We invite all of our listeners to check out the Spiritual Care Podcast with Humankind host David Freudberg. You'll hear stories of caregivers providing spiritual support for people in need and often in distress. These caregivers offer a sympathetic, non judgmental ear to people encountering times of challenge, unease, and sometimes loss of meaning. The podcast explores the skills they bring to the profound act of listening. Find the Spiritual Care Podcast on iTunes or another podcatcher and learn more at thespiritualcarepodcast.org. Transforming Chaplaincy is supported by the John Templeton Foundation and promotes research literacy for improved patient outcomes. For more information, visit us online at transformchaplaincy.org, find us on Twitter at TransformChap1, or on Facebook at facebook.com transformingchaplaincy.